Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse, where we speak to experts, founders, and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir, and I, Pratish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling, and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is AD Supermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series guests and topics welcome everyone to today's session with neil sony and monica and me if you are new let me just quickly give you an overview of the club and the amas that we hold and then we will get to neil and understand his background and where where is he from and about his book and the work he does so the asian digital movers super movers was set up by monica mushir and me and the three of us hold different kind of AMAs with different, as we call them, OG experts on growth, building, and scaling and operating businesses. And every week we bring in three different aspects of building, operating, and scaling a business. Monica looks at product, everything to do with Asia. I look at growth and scaling, and Mushir looks at FinTech and DeFi. So for today, we have Neil Sony. He is the author of the Startup Goldmine book, which basically talks about how startups should cooperate, work, and negotiate themselves through the corporations, as well as negotiate themselves into probably being acquired or closely working with corporates. And that is also his expertise as a consultant, as well as uh, a mentor. On the other hand, he has the Open Innovation Newsletter, which he's going to talk about how he started it a few months ago, and now it has scaled into a huge subscription uh, across the world. Welcome, Neil. Nice to be here. It's a really good group you've put together. Thank you very much. So let's right dive into it and tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So I spent the first few years of my career in the startup side, primarily specializing in growth. So I was First, a founder, which we, we were able to grow that business. Not a huge outcome for anybody involved. It was a company in the education space, but we did have many thousands and thousands of users and several different enterprise customers. So we did have a, a business and it got it got almost like aqua hired, uh, if you've heard that term, into something that the, the Gates Foundation was doing. Not a, bad, not a bad first foray into entrepreneurship, but from there I started working with I went to a venture-backed company called Mom Trusted as the first non-software engineer employee and basically built the sales and marketing from the, the ground up. And that business is still around. You can check it out, momtrusted.com. But basically, yeah, when I joined, there was no no growth engine whatsoever. Um, it's like MVP stage. And as a product, no customers, uh, few users. And uh, we scaled that into several million users and thousands of customers. And so that business is still around, profitable, has not gone IPO or anything, but it is certainly a, a rail business. But I, after that, I started working with a number of companies on sales and marketing. And th- that could be many things. It could be a, a company that had an existing product, has users, but then is trying to turbocharge its kind of growth engines. Or it could be a company at an earlier stage that is just maybe starting to get to product market fit and is trying to then start figuring out, okay, where are our customers going to come from? And where will the users come from? And so I became this growth specialist and started a, a consulting business. This is maybe back in 2014, so some several years ago. 
worked with some companies that you may have heard of, like Docsend is, is probably one you may have heard of that got recently acquired by Dropbox. So yeah, a bunch of companies, primarily B2B. One big gap in my knowledge, I will say at that time, was I had never been inside of a corporate. All of the companies I'd worked for were probably at the time like 100 employees or less. But I was responsible on the other side of negotiating with these corporates. And I would talk to a lot of people, read a lot of books, but I really felt that was a gap in my knowledge. And so I had this opportunity come up with a very large cosmetics company called Estee Lauder, you may have heard of. And so it's the parent company of Estee Lauder. They were looking to basically better work with startups. So the flip side of what I do, uh, what I was doing on the, the growth side. And so I joined the company and actually stayed there for several years and built this department that they call external innovation. So the department's you know, goal is how can they solve problems externally from the organization? So primarily with startups, but it could also be with researchers or with, with other corporates as well. So we did some of that, but primarily is with startups. And the goal with those startups was to either work with them as a Estee Lauder being a customer in some cases, there were minority investments also as part of that. So they they don't have a dedicated venture fund, but they have a uh, they do off the balance sheet small investments. And then there's also acquisitions. And primarily, they did not acquire tech companies. They would mostly look to acquire small cosmetics brands. But we were part of I would say we fed into the M and A team. So we weren't the M and A decision makers, but we were certainly the front end of of what they were doing. So that experience was very enlightening, I would say, because I'd never sat in the corporate side. And so when I left a few years after that, I and mean, we can get into why uh, a little later, but I wanted to share that knowledge with others. And that's what led to the book. I was answering a lot of questions for startups anyway, while I was in that role and trying to help them understand, okay, this is why your intro meeting with a corporate takes so long to schedule. This is why you you can't, you, this is how the budgets work. This is how, this is why you need five different stakeholders to be on the call. So all of these things that when you're on the startup side exclusively uh, are a bit of a black box were things that after having been in corporate for several years, I much better understood. And so the book was really the culmination of, of that experience. Plus, if you read the book, there's interviews and knowledge that's taken from probably 20, 25 other corporate innovators. And so it's really trying to enlighten the founders. And primarily, it's written for founders, I would say. It could be a startup employee or an investor, but primarily, it's written for startup founders. And it's meant to expose them to the first part of the book is about the psychology of the, the large corporation, why things happen the way they are, the way they do, how the incentives work, why, how promotions work, why risk is such a big thing, which we'll definitely talk about. And in all of these different aspects of how people in corporate think. And then the second part is like more of a playbook. Okay, now you know how corporates think. Let's use that to your advantage and see how we can maybe help close your deals faster or, or get you better deals in the first place. So now after the book came out, this was like a couple of years back, I've been doing a lot of work at the intersection of startup and corporate. So I, I do work with startups today typically at the seed series A level. And it's still on growth, but it might be more enterprise sales focused now than it was a few years ago. I do still some sort of top of funnel marketing type work as well, but enterprise sales is probably where a lot of my uh, efforts are. And then I still work with corporates on the other side of that. So in, in recent months, I've worked with companies like Comcast, Sony, actually have a consulting project again with Estee Lauder. So it's, I work with different corporates, industry agnostic, but it's always something related to the startup corporate ecosystem. Brilliant. This is going to be an exciting AMA. 
before we go into the next question, I have just switched off the hand raising. We will be switching it on in 20 minutes. Please keep your questions ready so that we can ask them if you have any for Neil. So Neil, how should founders really look at corporates when they're thinking of working with them? A lot of accelerator programs come up, they pitch uh, to different corporate heads, innovation heads within within a corporation, or they also try to get acquired or acquire, as you mentioned. So how should they be ready to work with corporates and how should they better understand the corporate's KPIs and requirements? So the first thing that uh, a company will want to think about, a startup will want to think about is should they even want to work with a corporate, right? And I think that's a step that a lot of people miss, primarily first-time founders. They will look at a they'll look at a big company. I saw this many times at Estee Lauder. Small beauty brand would say they really want to partner with Estee Lauder. And on the surface, it makes a lot of sense. You say, okay, they have global scale or they have this huge venture fund, let's say, or this accelerator program like you mentioned. Those all sound really good, but not every company, I think, one, should work with a corporate. And then the second thing is, have to really know what they're trying to get out of it. And I think, and this is maybe more directed at first-time founders than anybody else, but it's easy to get dazzled by the name and not really think about like, how is this actually going to move my business forward? So that's definitely step one. And I think every founder, before they go down this path, really should think about that because there are, and I know it sounds odd for me as having written this book to, to caution people against working with corporate, but I think there are, there's kind of two sides, right? You can get incredible benefits from working with a corporate, but it also will slow you down in ways that you did not expect. And even if, and it will slow you down, even if you are conscious of that fact, I'll say, I'll give one example from, from my mom trusted days where there was a, a company that I won't say who they are, but a very large CPG company. They're in like the health and CPG space. And we were we had some momentum at the time and they were looking at working with us as an ad partner and there we had a very popular blog and, and social following. And, and so they were looking to tap into that. And so we got, I would say not me, you know, when I say we, it's, it, was, it was me getting blinded by it. They were throwing numbers around like hundred thousand dollar annual deal, $150,000 annual deal. And those numbers are significant for a very early stage startup. We spent months and months on that potential deal. And it never really panned out. There was always something that we were not doing or that they wanted or requirements that they had. And that didn't pan out. And it probably wasted a lot of time that we could have probably spent moving the business forward in other ways. We did have ad deals, obviously, that worked out with other corporates. But I just caution that to say is that as a startup, your manpower is limited, that your time is very limited. And so you really want to make sure you're, you're only pursuing these kinds of deals if it truly makes sense for you. And it does for some companies, but not for everyone. And then what was the second part of your, your question? Is how should they basically navigate? So if I have to rephrase it, what kind of question should a corporate, uh, sorry, a startup should be pitching or asking when yeah. they actually pitch to a, a corporate? So the first thing is if a corporate is in the room with you. So in, if we're talking primarily, let's say corporate innovation, you know, which is often in many companies tasked with, with scouting these types of things. If they're in the room with you, there's probably maybe one of two reasons or maybe one of three reasons why they, they even took the meeting. Because, And this is in the book. If, if you go and check it out, there's 
the top of funnel for these corporates, so the amount of leads they're getting or amount of potential conversations they're getting are enormous. So when I was at Estee Lauder, we probably got hundreds of inbound uh, a week, right? And now I've worked with other companies. It's very similar. Everybody uses LinkedIn. Everybody uses the same automatic scraping tools to get these leads. Everybody has all the leads and they all are, everybody's spamming everybody basically in this industry. So the fact that a corporate even said yes to the meeting is a sign of one of a couple things. One is they're just trying to gain information on you. So that's the first thing is maybe they're intrigued. What you're doing is in a space that they're tasked with learning more about or potentially getting involved in. So that's a good sign, right? If they're even taking a meeting with you is a good sign. I will give one caveat to that in a second, but the fact they're even in the meeting with you is a good sign. The second thing you want to do is, as you're getting into those meetings, is go in with a true ask. What are you trying to get from it? Are you trying to access their retail network? If they're a retailer, are you trying to access some their distribution? If they have a big Salesforce or something, it very much depends on, on the company that we're you're talking about, but you have to go in with a, with a very clear ask. And then the third piece is really try to understand during that first meeting, what are how are they thinking about you? Is it for a potential investment? Is it for a, a customer relationship? Because they won't tell you that as you set up the meeting, typically. Some companies, I think, do a very good job of making that clear, but the vast majority of them, it's more, let's have an intro call. Let's have an, this is a pre-COVID, obviously, but let's have a, let's meet uh, and have an intro meeting. They're very kind of vague meetings. And so I think early on in the meeting, I, I would, maybe even before you get into your pitch, really get a sense for what is the purpose of this. And I think for an intro call, that's that's a, a really, I would recommend that's how you start because how you would pitch a potential acquisition is very different than you would pitch a customer relationship. Got that. And you talked about B2C and there is B2B as well, where you also have expertise. Do you think both the industries and pitches are different or they're almost the same? Well, and you're talking specifically with startup corporate? Yes. So I think they're almost the same, right? Because there there are obviously differences, but they're almost the same in that you still have to think about how how am I plugging into this corporate and benefiting them? For example, let's say they are a B2C retailer, for example, and you're you also have a B2C product. Like obviously it all comes down to how is your product gonna make their help them serve their customers better or help them make more money or help them save money. So it all comes back to that. And B2B is, is often very similar. So I, I wouldn't say the startup corporate interactions are anything too different, whether it's B2B or B2C. Love that. And in your book, you talk about corporate landmines, right? Yep. So can you tell us what those landmines are and what are the obvious uh, landmines that startups can actually avoid from the get-go? Yeah. So taking one step back, when you think about these startup corporate relationships, something that a corporate employee, right? So whether they're head of innovation or in new ventures or whatever their title happens to be, anyone in corporate is trying to manage risk, right? And when I say risk, it is risk to their own career, risk to their reputation. And there, you have to also keep in mind, there's not the same upside that you have as a startup employee or as a startup founder. If you're successful as a startup founder, you have a lot to gain. If you are successful with a startup corporate collaboration and you're on the corporate side of the table, you don't gain very much. You gain a little bit. Maybe it'll impact your bonus. Maybe you'll get a, get some points in your annual review with, with your boss. But you're certainly not going to become wealthy off of a startup collaboration, that you, most likely, that you put together. 
And so the risk is flipped because if the startup turns out to colossally blow up in your face, Theranos is an example that I think most people are probably familiar with. That's something where you could actually lose your job if you didn't do diligence properly or you didn't truly understand what the startup does or understand the technology. And so the risk is inverse to what it is as a startup founder. As a startup founder, it's max gain. Yeah, you can fail and, of course, lose something. But on the corporate side, it's you don't gain very much and you can actually lose a lot. So that's the first thing to keep in mind on the kind of the startup corporate landmine side, because the biggest landmine is assuming when you're on the startup side of the table, assuming that your corporate counterpart has just as much to gain from a win as you. So you're asking them to take like the same risks that, that you're comfortable taking. So that's a, a, a big landmine. Another one is that I notice is not truly understanding the sales process. So the way that decisions are made in corporate, it's not usually like a unilateral decision. Like it's very rare that a single person can say, yes, we will, we want to implement this and we want to buy it. And then there's no other stakeholders involved. That's extremely rare. So typically there's, let's say it's a, a software product. So you have, you might have innovation involved. You might have digital involved. You might have IT and cyber and cybersecurity involved. There's probably several different departments. And so in terms of a landmine, I've seen companies, startups get very frustrated in the process when they just keep you know, harping on one of those decision makers, one of those stakeholders and say that and, and basically say that if they're not, they said, yes, why isn't this deal moving forward? But there's other people involved in this process that you need to convince as well that, that your company is worth it. And then the last piece, we can obviously get into more details, but the last thing on that is around budgeting. So a lot of startups early on, and I was the same way, look at corporates as having a ton of cash. And I think sometimes that is sometimes that's absolutely true, but it also really depends on which group you're talking to and what their specific budget situation is. A particular department might not actually have that much cash or they might already have allocated all of it and they might need to wait till the next quarter or fiscal year. And that's not something I would say that I understood when I was purely on the, the startup side of the, of the uh, equation. So I didn't realize that the budgeting process might be allocated quarterly, annually, depending on the company, and that the specific department matters almost as much, if not more, than the company that you're pitching, because their financial situations are probably not the same from one department to the next. Got that. Before I get to how COVID has impacted this whole landscape, I would like to ask you a question. Let's say I'm a startup, I'm doing a cold outreach. And sure. I have three scenarios. One is that I can reach out to the CEO of the company. I can reach out to the department head of the company who is going to be most impacted by my product or service. Or there is a CIO, Chief Innovation Officer. Among the three of these, who should I reach out? Or maybe there's a fourth person who you think is the best person to reach out to. So I think the department head and CIO are your best bet. And note on that is the innovation groups are typically, I would say influencers, not decision makers. The department head is probably the final decision maker there, but the chief innovation officer could get you in the door, whereas the department head may not may not respond to your email <laughs> or may not may not immediately see the benefit of what you have to offer. So there's if your goal is to get a foot in the door, the chief innovation officer is is often a good bet because they do have their hands in what the future of the business looks like. And I'm guessing the startup this hypothetical startup is uh, impacting the future of this business, not necessarily the, maybe it's impacting today, but the goal is as they grow and as things change in the future, that they're 
well positioned for that. So I think the chief innovation officer is a good way to get the foot in the door, but it's very important to remember they are probably not your decision maker. So you do need to get to the department head as well. So I, I know this is a maybe a lame answer, but I would say both of those. The CEO, more than 99 times out of 100, you won't get a response back. Now, if you have a chance to get an introduction to the CEO, of course, that is nothing like that. If you can actually get in front of them and, and convince them of the value, I think there's nothing like that. You Anything coming from the top at that level will have a very good shot of actually happening. So it, all of that to say, if you can get in front of the CEO and, and, and you have a, maybe a good way of doing it, that's great. Probably not best to spend your time just cold emailing CEOs all day. You probably have a much better chance of uh, getting in the door with the chief innovation officer. But re- keep remembering that the chief innovation officer is probably not going to a have budget to actually say yes or no to a uh, or to a pilot or a full contract, and then probably in most companies is not even the, the decision makers. Just keep that in mind and remember that the innovation group is often just a way into the company. It's not really. Uh, your end goal. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think from my experience as well, the advantage of a CIO is definitely that they have the pulse across the company. So they may be able to actually open more doors and introduce you to other business units where you could actually add value and you may not have thought of. Going directly to a department head who act potentially has the budget to get your pilot on is somebody who looks at their business unit specifically. So it's a very targeted approach, but also it doesn't potentially initially lead to opening your doors to other potential teams. I think that's my learning as well. So I think CIO and the department head have their own values. Yeah, exactly. Great. And, And some of this is dependent on the company, right? So some companies have, their innovation groups have budget or authority. To, to do pilots or at least to say yes to to some level of deal. Other groups, it's they have no authority to do that. It's all run through the business units. So it does depend on the company as well. Yep, great. Thank you. Monica, over to you. Thank you so much, Pratish and Neil. Lovely conversation. Let me do a quick room reset so that everybody who's joining us has an understanding. We've had quite a few new people. So thank you everyone for listening in. We are the Asian Digital Super Movers. If you haven't followed the club, you can do that by clicking on the greenhouse icon at the top of the page and giving us a quick follow. As uh, Pratish mentioned earlier, we uh, have a number of OJX coming in every week and we actually have a very packed weekly calendar starting with uh, weekly programs on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday and Sunday for sure. On Wednesday, we have the weekly news at 7.30 p.m. India time, which is 10 o'clock Hong Kong. And on Thursday, we have a community mixer and networking event to help understand who we have in the community, help to know each other, as well as, of course, to be able to build relationships and connections. And on next Saturday, we have building Build for Asia, which is my series on product management. So we have a very exciting uh, group of speakers coming right up. So I'm sure you'd be uh, happy to hear them. But in the meantime, we would also appreciate if you could give the speakers as well as, of course, the moderators a follow so that you always uh, have the notifications right in your inbox as to when we go live with the exciting speakers and you don't have to look at trying to figure out when Clubhouse is sending you a notification. Also, 
for others who are in the audience, uh, Pratish has turned off hand raising for about maybe the next 5 to 10 minutes. Then he will open up hand raising at which point in time, okay, hand raising is already on. At which point in time, we'll be bringing up the audience members to come and speak to Neil himself. If you have an audience, if you have a question and you're in the audience, please do raise your hands by clicking on the hand raise icon right next to the plus sign at the bottom of your screens. Also, you could... Um, add and ping in your friends who are who might be interested in this conversation by clicking on the plus which is again at the bottom of your screens also a quick reminder that we are on twitter so in case you are not able to speak right now or unable to ask a question you can always dm us on twitter we are at the ad super movers and we are on linkedin and on telegram on the same address which is ad super movers so again we would love if you join our community we keep posting regularly and keep providing updates thank you uh pratish we already have somebody from the audience should i pull them up yeah sure go ahead uh, while you're doing that, Monica, thank you. Uh, Neil, before we get Jonathan and Michelle to ask the question or make a comment, how do you think COVID has accelerated the whole process of startups working with corporates? I think it's helped quite a bit from if you're on the startup side of, of the table. And I think part of last year, so part of 2020 initially, was very tough for startup corporate collaborations because corporates were in this... I was calling it uh, turtle mode to people in private conversations. They were going into their shell. They were not comfortable doing anything outside of their comfort zone or what their kind of core business operations were. And so, of course, innovation got put to the side. That lasted for a few months. But I think in the months since, and I think up to the present day, it has really highlighted, and I'm going to be thinking out loud here as I say this, so forgive me if it's a little bit not as polished, but I think companies have figured out that they need to develop the muscle of being able to adapt quickly. And it's brought it to light. COVID brought it to light in a way that I think in the years prior, all the conferences and books and case studies and whatnot, they they couldn't really convince corporates of this. But then COVID, obviously, it did because the world changed so, so fast. And we don't know when something like that could happen again. It doesn't have to be a pandemic and it doesn't have to be global. It could be a regional things changes. It could be something in your industry changes. But I think it's brought to light, especially for the C-suite at corporates, that this is like a muscle that needs to be created. And I think the good thing for innovation groups is they're increasingly recognized as potentially being the being that muscle for, for quickly adapting to, to changes. So I think today, if we fast forward, so not a few months after COVID started, but now I think if, if you're a startup, you are probably in a better position to collaborate with corporate if you want than you were than you were before because I think you you're solving a need for them and and there's a, a big mandate now in corporate to it depends on the corporate of course so I don't like giving blanket statements but just generally with my with my interactions with corporate it's it certainly seems like the appetite to collaborate with startups has increased uh, quite a bit yeah I know it's, it's hard to say for all companies right if one if something is one way or the other but Certainly, it feels in my interactions with corporate that there is a, a greater mandate and a greater flexibility to working with startups than there might have been before. Thanks. Jonathan, please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for this interesting discussion, British Monica and Neil. I'm a scale-up. I, I don't know if the terminology exists in the US, but uh, we're a company of above 100 people. 
is still a bit under the radar. No external VC money or external funding, but for 100 experts, that's already quite a size. And I absolutely agree with Neil that in the beginning, it was like everything from a risk mitigation point of view towards startups and scale-ups was just like closed. The gates were closed for big multinationals. But then everybody started realizing that it was for the long run, this crisis. And then all of a sudden it became a level playing field in the sense that normally if you, for instance, from a European perspective, you want to have access to Walmart, you need to fly there. You need to book mm, a week. Yep. You need to arrange uh, a visa. And now everybody's just available via Zoom. I, yep. I had already several meetings in, in the Valley also via Zoom. And then I was asking like, yeah, after COVID times, I will certainly visit you. And they're like, no, times have changed. You don't need to visit us. This is good enough. We can have a perfectly a relation in the making by seeing each other via Zoom. And so I absolutely agree that it, it's much better. And I really say much better than before the crisis. Overall, we grow more than because of the whole digital transformation, of course, really speeding up with this crisis. But I had one particular question to Neil. These, these tools of digital transformation are most, I mean, uh, we're in AI. So we, if we approach big corporates, which are our number one target, we work with Hitachi, Johnson, Sony, Mitsubishi Electric, TSMC, all of the big guys. Uh, we're always in, in an oxymoron and a kind of uh, contradiction. Like mm. we were there and pitching to really the absolute sea level, like how important we are for them. But then they realize that we are too important. So then the, then we get we all get the M&A departments, the Sony M&A department, the Itachi, everybody's approaching us like, we cannot just work with you without investment. And we're like, yeah, but if, if we let Sony invest, then Samsung is maybe not no longer interested and so on. So I was just wondering if you have really valuable IP that is the foundation to an important problem or challenge that can be solved for that multinational, how do you cope with this contradiction that the yeah. more important your product is, the more they are, uh, they are really their buyers, they are, are sensing a lock in, they're sensing all kinds of, of red alert lights that you're too important for them. Yeah. And then you also get this internal, you have these very strong ambassadors that, that really fight for you and they're like calling you after the meeting and yes, let's go for it and such. And, but then you also have these enemies in these multinationals that are like, you will become too important for us because we're just IT. We like Citrix, we like Dell and you're coming with this old mambo jambo of NVIDIA and GPUs and so on. And, and you're the partner, you will decide too much for us. So the, I, I try to compactify my question. What in these times of, yeah, of disruption, you have a very powerful product and how do you cope with this apparent contradiction, Neil? Yeah. Yeah. So my mind initially and completely went to how this works in like the healthcare or pharmaceutical industry. I think there's a lot of parallels, right? In the sense that I, I think what you're saying is that when you approach these companies, they all like it so much and they all view it as so core to what they're doing that they want to own it and they don't want it, you to be able to go work with competitors. Jonathan, is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So basically, I think the, the similarities to farm are, are quite large. And if you see what happens there, that yeah, companies, and of course, I don't know if you're commercialized or not, or you have revenue or not, but in pharma, 
there's a long road from initial kind of development to actually having a product in the market. And so revenue is, is far away. And a company can go down that path independently, or they can go down it after getting acquired, or there's a step in between that may be an interesting approach for you here or something to at least draw some inspiration from. But in the pharma industry, you see a lot of like venture dollars are quite high, but then there are also these like what are called commercialization arrangements. So let's say like a large pharma company speaking to a small uh, pharma company or biotech company will look at something maybe in phase one or phase two and say, oh, this has a lot of potential. We want to lock this up and so that you can't just sell, you won't be able to get sold to a competitor, but it's not far enough along that we want to acquire this for the number that the price that you want to get acquired for. So there's this halfway kind of agreement that they do. And and I forget the terminology for it. I think it's like a commercialization uh, partnership or something where they pay a fee for the right to be the commercial partner, but it's not locked in. So they pay the fee up front and then there are milestone payments along the way based on how the, the company does. Um, but it's not an acquisition conversation. It's more, hey, we have the right to go commercialize this. But if you don't meet the milestones, you're, you get to continue being an independent and continue doing what you're doing. And then from the company, the startup side, they don't have to agree to an acquisition today. So there's there might be some sort of hybrid approach. And I do, again, I don't know all the specifics that your, your company has, but there might be some kind of uh, hybrid approach that you can take. But just more generally, this is a good problem to have, right? And I think having all of these companies interested, if at any point in time you did say, okay, I want to see what these companies are willing to pay. And I don't know if you've had those kind of numbers conversations with them. But well, yeah, I mean, we know, all with all yeah. of them, we have commercial relationships. So it's not, but uh, the thing is to scale up these contracts to multi million dollar contracts for a client. It is yeah. always, you always get a call from the MA department. And I just you say decide. no to them. And if you say no, you don't want to be acquired. That's not, you're not looking to be acquired right now. Is their response that, okay, then we don't want to work with you or it's let's keep working together? Uh, it's, it's let's keep let's commercial. keep working together, but and that's where I wanted your advice, like how to to sail between those epicenters. You understand? Yeah, and but are they saying they don't want to work with you if you don't want to be acquired, or they're they're okay continuing to work together and scaling up the contract, or they're saying they don't want to scale up the contract unless you're an in-house provider for them? It depends on the multinational, but both happens, of course. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's always, it prolongs that the contract discussion prolongs. They use it as some kind of argument. If we call them like, when do you sign a deal? Yeah, but you have to answer MA first. You understand? So you feel that mm, they will go They're on. delaying it because of that. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And are they asking for exclusivity if you don't do the, the MA route? Are they saying they want you to exclusively provide for them? Because all of that just to say that. If they are asking for exclusivity they're and you're open to something like that, they're in for it obviously depends more. I don't know all the, the details, but you can add a, a very significant amount of money for an exclusivity fee, depending on what you're doing, of course. But companies yeah, know no, that they're not going to get that for free. Exactly. And that's the the game we play. Okay. You can yeah. get an exclusivity, but, but let's make the business case. If we cannot sell to your competitors, how much right. business were closed out of? And, and that, exactly. that works. I mean, yep. But I'm yeah, I mean, that's one way forward. to, yeah, that's one way to, to, to do it. I think, yeah, I need to, if you want to talk more later, I'd be, I'd definitely be interested in, in hearing more because I think some of this does depend on the specifics and sometimes it's hard to get that on the surface level conversation. Absolutely. I, I'd love to get in touch. I will switch a direct, a direct message you on Twitter or via LinkedIn, but I, sure. I want to hijack the conversation neither with sure, my sure. use case. So thank you so much. Yeah. 
I'm Jonathan Berti, founder of Robovision, and I'm done speaking. Thanks, Jonathan. Hi, Michelle. You're next. Do give a 10-second introduction and go ahead with your question. Hi. Thank you for bringing me up on the stage. My name is Michelle, and I am a early startup founder. I'm trying to build a lending platform. And, and so my question is, I'd like to know, Neil, if you have any tips on how startups or just, just in general, how one could research or just identify the opportunities of that sweet spot from a corporate strategy standpoint to identify where their sweet spot is in terms of innovating and risk and managing risk. And yeah, just any sort of would it help to identify the sort of partnerships they have been building? Yeah, so that's certainly one way, looking at what they've already been doing. The other thing that you can do that to me is usually a really good indication is looking at what competitors have done. So if you look at, I'm just making up an example, but I'll use your industry. If you see three major banks all do, I don't know, like a crypto partnership, and then there's one or two that conspicuously have not done a partnership in that space, right? Then, and you are doing that, that's an interesting way to approach a, a potential partner by saying that, okay, just in terms of surfacing, like what they might be interested in, it's like maybe they haven't done it because they were trying to work with those other companies that worked with their competitors, but they lost out on those deals, or maybe those ended up being exclusive deals that they were shut out of. Or it could be that they haven't yet found the right partner, and maybe your what you're doing or the version of what you're doing is a better fit for that particular partner. So that's certainly one way is to look at competitors. And I think competitors meaning similar deals that were done with other sort of potential partners. The other thing is to, and this also depends on your sort of target, but given your space, I think there are a lot of public companies in kind of the financial services space. And even just like doing things like looking at their regulatory filings or when, or like interviews with their chief innovation officer, if they have one or their C-suite, and just see the kinds of things that they're talking about, because it's very likely the companies spend more time talking, and this maybe isn't like a critique of corporates, it's just the way it, it works. They spend a lot of time talking about the new innovative things that they're doing before those things even have a massive impact on the, the bottom line. And so you can often learn a lot about a company's innovation agenda just by hearing, let's say, a podcast interview with someone in the C-suite or or, or they do a TV interview or something. TV interview sometimes is too short for them to really get into these into the nuance. So sometimes more like the long form interviews surface a little bit more. But that's another good way to get a good sense for, okay, these are the kinds of things they're interested in and partnerships that they've done. So yeah, those are two ways. And then the third way, which is actually related to the free newsletter that I have, um, is looking at, so sometimes, and not every company does this, so that's the caveat, but there's something called open innovation where companies actually put out requests for uh, requests for startups, basically. And they'll say, hey, we have a problem with this particular thing. This is the type of solution we're looking for. Sometimes there's prize money attached to that. Many times it's more like uh, a dedicated pilot project, right? There's a budget for a pilot project. And if it goes well, then they'll scale it up. But those sort of open calls for startups uh, are also another good way to, to see like what companies are actually interested in and um, what they're currently looking for. Great, thank you. Just to add to Neil and Michelle's question, I think because you talked about fintech, just give you an example, HSBC, I'm based in Hong Kong, and 
they obviously are the biggest bank here, started from Hong Kong as well. They have an open data set. So they are literally looking at startups to come and use those data sets and probably build a product out of that, which potentially you can pitch back to them or you can use based on uh, and provide a product for their consumers using the data set. So the open innovation concept potentially in the big established banks, even Standard Chartered has something very similar. They have a website also. I don't clearly remember what the name is but they are also open to any application, any products anybody wants to pitch. And they do hold very regular conversations with businesses or startups who apply through those channels or utilize those open data sets for these banks. So I think that is how open innovation can be leveraged by startups. Great. Great, thank you. And can I add a second part to that question? Just digging a little further. Yeah, we have 15 minutes left. Please be very short. Sure. Okay. I was just wondering, you mentioned, Neil, that there's uh, different roles that are decision makers. And just is there a way that to better position oneself to appeal to all of those decision makers? Yeah, it, it depends. So if it's a department head, it's just trying, I guess the short way to answer the question is just understand what they're being judged on. So like an innovation group might be judged on the number of innovative pilots it does or the results of those pilot projects, whereas a department head uh, might be judged based on revenue or on something maybe a little more tangible than what the, the innovation group will be judged on. So just as you have those conversations with the, the different stakeholders, just putting yourself in their shoes and thinking, what are what is their boss looking at them to accomplish? And then trying to position yourself for that. Yeah. That's probably the short way of answering that. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Jane? Jan, sorry, you're up next. 10 seconds of intro and your question, please. Hi, and good afternoon, everybody. Mian, I'm a Belgian entrepreneur, business artist, and executive consultant for the moment. That's just like a photo of now. But I worked uh, as a transactional lawyer in uh, big corporates over 20 years. And, and I actually wanted to, this, my question is actually, why is this, is the question here? how startups should collaborate with corporates and not the other way around. How should corporates collaborate with startups? Because as from my experience, and I know that, that corporates are very envious of startups in terms of, in terms of speed yep. of moving. And just to give a little story about that, about 10 years ago, I had to negotiate a contract. I was working for the incumbent fintech company in Belgium. And I had to make a, a, a sort of collaboration contract with, sorry, with a startup who was into optimization of ordering, ordering at restaurants, etc. And I was asking the business manager, why are we not, why are not we acquiring, why are we acquiring? And she said something very interesting. She said, if we are going to acquire that company with our corporate structure, we will kill it. Just by uh, applying all our rules, our policies, our, our decision-making processes, basically our politics, applying that to, uh, to startup, and we will kill it. So I'm rather asking myself, how should corporates collaborate with startups? Yeah, no, that's a, a very, I think it's just the you know, nature of the audience we have in, the, in, in this room. But I think if it was a room of corporate innovators, yeah, I think that topic is just as mind-boggling as, the, as this one. But I completely agree. A lot of times, 
and you see this, there's like a whole graveyard of acquisitions, right? Like a corporate acquires a, a startup and three years later, the startup is dead and the corporate spent all the money and didn't get a whole lot out of it. So there's a you know massive graveyard of examples of those. But yeah, I agree with you. That is just as big of a question. And that's primarily when I work with corporates, that's what I'm working on with them. It's how can they better work with startups and create structures that don't suffocate their their startup partners or, or acquisitions. Yeah, completely agree with you, Jan. I'm done. Thanks, Jan. Neil, you're next. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for inviting me up. So I'm a New York-based family office investor, and I'm CEO of fintech startup Meritas. And very quickly, Meritas is a platform for personal investing, but it's virtual, so similar to fantasy football for the stock market. We have stock picking competitions that we run locally in the U.S., and this room was interesting to me because we're looking to expand outside of the U.S. and, and India and China and, and some of the other jurisdictions. So the question I have is we raised some funding and uh, are, are redoing our app and redoing the UI and, and the design, but we always envision getting our contest sponsored by corporates. And what we've been doing or the thought process is then it should be conversion from their existing uh, marketing spend. So whatever, whoever's in charge of the digital marketing will send some of that all way and then we'll basically give it to college students and whoever's in our platform. So it was a good feel good story. And the question I had is what's the best way to approach that? Who, I guess, identifying who's the trigger puller or, or is there some other way you think makes sense? So there's a few different ways to approach that. I think somebody in <clears throat> in in marketing may be interesting, but I think a lot of these decisions are surprisingly made at like the ad agency level because I don't I don't know what your audience size is or the amount of money you're asking and the kinds of companies you're even you're approaching, but often if you go to, you know directly to marketing and you're you have a small ask for them, right? Not for you, but for their marketing spend, it's a relatively small ask. Uh, it's almost too small for them to really spend much of their own attention on. So the marketing agencies that they work with might be a better fit. And there are sites, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there are sites where you can find the, like publicly, where you can find the agencies that, that corporates work with. So you can see, oh, P&G works with this agency or that agency. And uh, Citigroup works for this agency and that agency. So I would that may be the best place to start, in my opinion, because you have less hoops to jump through, and they already are tasked with spending those dollars and and testing out new channels and stuff. So that would be my recommendation off of just hearing the initial overview that you gave me. But there might be context I'm missing. But yeah, that would be my first thought is try the try the agencies, and then if you're not getting anywhere with that, then maybe go to the corporate because it's going to take much longer with the corporate and. I, again, I don't know how much money you're asking them for, but it might almost be too small for the corporate to to spend a lot of time on. Yeah, our amounts are pretty small. We're we're in the tens of thousands of dollars in terms of what our contests are typically ours. So it's it's yeah. not yep. a large amount of money. And I guess finding that <clears throat> that type of decision maker has been tough. Yeah, and it's I had a my my first boss actually he we were pitching something to to Procter and Gamble and it was basically like a setup fee or something we were, we had on the project and it was it was like 5000 bucks or something and i was hesitant i was 22 years old and i was thinking i'm like that's a lot of money to charge for a setup fee and his response to me he'd previously worked at Procter and Gamble was that that would not even qualify as a rounding error for the department that we were pitching to and it's important to keep that in mind because if you're not even a rounding error it's almost too small for them to even care about 
And uh, that actually makes it very hard for them to say yes, because again, going back to the upside and downside in corporate, it's if it's so small, in terms of my upside, I don't really have very much like how much impact is this tens of thousands of, of dollar marketing spend going to actually add to my metrics that I'm being judged on. On the other hand, if this platform ends up getting, I'm not saying this is the case with, with you, obviously, but if there's some kind of negative repercussions of being on this platform, why open myself up to that? And a lot of this is subconscious, right? Like it's not a, something that the corporate, the, let's say marketing person you're pitching to is explicitly thinking about and has, they don't have a pros and cons list that they're writing these, these two things down on, but there is some of this like subconscious balancing of what do I actually have to gain from this and what are the downsides or even like the downside of just the brain power needed to consider a new platform. Yeah, it's almost, it, it's not at that level, it's almost not something they would want to to spend their time on. On the other hand, agencies are always looking at, because there's they're a commodity, not saying all agencies are a commodity, but there's a lot of agencies out there. And you always want to show we're using this new innovative channel. And it's just like a little thing they can use to, to spice up their, their, their marketing mix. And so I actually think you might have a lot of success with agencies just because it's, it sounds like something new, innovative, exciting, and not overly expensive for them to go test with you. So I think you might have a lot of success with that. That's, that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Thanks, Neil. Nick, you're up next. Great name, by the way. Hi, <laughs> for inviting. I'm a CEO and co-founder at Go4ItApp. We connect auto transporters with car dealerships. And I decided to come into this room and ask this question because recently I was approached by one of the corporations that is actually a startup as well they just started much earlier than we started and because we process a lot of autom automotive data of that corporation because users of my app use my application to process data of the corporation that approached me and so i was contacted by director of business operation and they offered me actually give me the exact offer but hinted that they are considering to start talking about possible buyout or maybe collaboration in terms of exchanging data and so gave me a lot of hints nothing nothing very concrete no proposal or anything like that but i i have guessing that they are interested to know more about us and so hinted some possible collaborations I just wanted to ask a few questions. Of course, it's a very specific question. You probably need to know my structure, what we what we are building and what stage we are at. But in general, what kind of advice uh, you can give me? What kind of to, to if we go into collaboration or if we decide to actually uh, also review the possibility of buying out, what would be the best strategy for me to protect? I mean, to play in the best interest of my startup and shareholders and yeah uh, so because this so is would you say this would you say this company is a competitor of yours or no that company is a uh, car auction they sell okay. used cars and the auto transporters on my platform use uh, my application to process everything when it relates to transporting cars for that auction so they don't have the sophisticated tools, uh, but we have. So our users process their automotive data. Got it. 
Yeah. So in, in many ways, this is, I mean, your his feelers is what I would say he's putting out. He's putting out like feelers to see, I think first he wants to see what you're even open to. So there are just given how you described what they do and what you do, you are kind of, if you, if they were to acquire you, it's a vertical integration, right? It's like you are the next kind of a next logical thing. Like they could go build it themselves potentially, maybe not as well as you. And of course it's going to take them time and money. And then even then you're probably further ahead. So from their perspective, if they have the cash or they have a compelling offer, their thought process is probably it's easier to go work with Nick than to to try to compete with him. So I'm thinking from how you described it, I'm thinking that's their logic and reaching out and, and feeling what you are even open to. I will say I've, I've been a part of one of these in the past. Typically, they don't come out and say acquisition to start. This is not really like a corporate from how you're describing. They're like another, maybe a larger startup, but they're they're certainly not like a multinational company. They'll often want to start with a partnership. And, and if you think about it, if you put yourself in their shoes, it makes sense. They want to see, okay, yeah, is there something actually here if we were combined into one, com- one company? And whether that's from a data sharing perspective, whether that's from a, we do almost like a referral fee, right? And I've seen that approach done where, They'll test it with a referral fee type relationship, see how much volume can be generated. And then it might make more sense to actually co- combine under one under one company. So there's different approaches. But the sense I get from how you described is they are feeling out like, one, are you even interested? And two, how can we test this before we make a formal proposal to actually join, go under one, buy you basically, buy you or, or combine that's the sense I get from how you're saying. But I think, yeah, be, if you are if you are open to working with them, be open to that at least first step, that collaboration step, because you're not locked into anything. You'll be, just know that's probably why they're, they want to collaborate in the first place, but you're not locked into anything. And if, you know, it doesn't perform the way that you want or the way they want, it will be, it, it, more often than not, these things don't lead to an acquisition, but it's a, it's a mutual exploration of, is there a possibility of us working together? And is there a way that us working together is greater than us being, you know, separate companies? So that's from everything you described, that's the sense I get is that's why they're approaching you that way. Thank you. Sounds interesting. Thanks, Nick. We just hit our one hour mark. Nick, before we let you go, do tell us about the Open Innovation Newsletter, how you started it and how has it scaled over the last few months? Yeah, the Open Innovation Leads uh, newsletter. And if you want to go subscribe, it's openinnovationleads.com. And it's just it's a free email that I send every couple of weeks. Actually, so it started a few months ago, but I was organically sending innovation opportunities to startups for months or even years prior to that. If I saw something or I heard uh, of a corporate that's seeking a, a specific type of startup, I was sending it out to to startups in my network or accelerators or or founders who I knew could be a good fit. So I was just already doing that. And a couple founders said that, oh, this would be a good idea for, for an email list. And yeah, I just started it, uh, honestly, very without much of a strategy <laughs> behind it, just to turn that into a convert kit landing page and, and then just started sending this email. So it's been a few months now. It's probably been about six months since I did the, the first one. And the list has grown. So it's surprisingly, it hasn't been only founders who joined the list. So it's a lot of founders, of course, but then there's also a lot of investors uh, who've joined the list. And those investors are perhaps they're looking at to see what cor- what opportunities corporates are looking for or what they're publicly saying that they're looking for. So it might be like a market intelligence side. And it might also be 
that they want to forward these opportunities to their portfolio company. So from speaking with people on my list, that's the sense I get is that those are that's what investors are looking for from it. And then there's some corporate innovators who've joined the list as well, mainly to see what other corporates are doing. And I've spoken with a lot of the corporate innovators who are on the list. It seems like a lot more companies, a lot more corporates are considering doing these types of challenges or open requests for startups. I think in the past, and this has certainly been my experience, corporates can be very secretive, almost overly secretive sometimes. And I think they're starting to realize the the value of if we publicly talk about uh, a certain need or um, a type of technology that we're interested in, we actually get a lot of really interesting inbound. And so these sort of innovation challenges or open innovation portals are ways for them to build their inbound uh, pipeline. And then it's a matter of how do they through that pipeline. But that's that's another discussion. But yeah, that's so that's a lot of the audience on the list. It's a, so right now it's a free email that's not going to change. But I'm actually building a tool on top of the email list that basically is for uh, receiving these alerts in real time. So when there's an innovation opportunity that's relevant to you, you'll get a, a, essentially an instant email alert that says, this is the company, this is where you go to apply, this is the information, and you don't have to wait for the every two week newsletter. And then you can also search through the database of, of historical opportunities. And you might think, why would I care what uh, a corporate was interested in six months ago? But what you might find is actually they put out the open call for startup but they never actually found a, a winner of that challenge or they never actually uh, solved the problem they were trying to solve. And seeing those historical opportunities can actually lead to really interesting uh, sales opportunities. So that's that will be like a low cost kind of micro SaaS tool, but that's not out just yet. But if you're on the list, you'll you'll one, you'll you know get alerted when that's ready, but you'll also get a discount. Yeah, you can join the list. And if you want to connect with me, Twitter, I answer mo- the DMs there, but LinkedIn is, is probably the best place. And if you go to my website, which is just neilsony.com, you can see my, you can reach me by email or, or some other channels there, but that's probably the best way to get in touch. Great. Thanks, Neil. Over to you, Monica. Sorry, I was speaking on mute. Thank you, Neil, for this insightful conversation. As usual, it's been absolutely riveting to hear. And thank you for answering all the audience questions uh, so patiently. Uh, It's been a pleasure to host you. But before I let you go, I wanted to thank everyone in the audience for listening in and for, of course, giving us their time on a Sunday evening or on a Sunday morning, wherever you are joining from across the globe. We typically have a weekly calendar of conversations coming up, which we announce on Twitter, LinkedIn, as well as on Telegram. So if you're looking to uh, get connected with us, please do not uh, forget to follow us on Twitter at AD Supermovers. Same for LinkedIn, which is AD Supermovers, and also join our Telegram group. We'd be coming up with more weekly shows next week uh, we'll be announcing that on our twitter page soon and uh, neil thank you again for giving us your time and i thank uh, obviously pratish who's the co- moderator and has managed this absolutely amazingly thank you so much for all the insights and everything else that uh, managed that helped us get this show through so thank you everyone and have a wonderful week ahead of you thanks monica thanks neil for joining yeah. Yeah, thank you everyone for joining and Monica and Pritish for, for hosting here. This was a, a lot, a very fun discussion and I look forward to actually tuning in as an audience member to some future ones. Thank you very much. Everybody stay safe and stay healthy. Bye. We'll be closing the room Bye. in 10 seconds. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.